coming to you from my apartment that doubles as a podcast recording studio. This is What Should I Do With My Life with Steph Horowitz. I'm Steph Horowitz. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is about how none of us know what we're doing. None of us have it figured out. No matter if you seem like you have it all together, you really don't, so be honest. We're going to talk about real stories from real people, their experiences, how they're figuring it out. From career pivots to being in the same industry for 40 years, we're going to hash this thing out so we can all find more meaning and passion in our work and day-to-days. Hi everyone, please meet the goal guru, Meg Wagner. After Meg's second grade career day ignited her passion to become a book editor when she grew up, Meg spent her professional journey wanting to work in books, eventually landing her dream job at Penguin Random House. After shifting her focus and working in digital production at HBO, Meg's journey skills and tools she shared with others have all culminated in her latest role, which she's been deep down all along, the goal guru. Today, Meg is a leadership coach and team vision builder who helps teams, individuals, and leaders break down their goals into actionable steps so they can make progress on things that are important to them. In this episode, Meg shares about expectations versus reality when it comes to your dream job, teaches us how we can all become collaborators in our own job descriptions, and talks about how and if we can really separate our careers from our identities. Here she is. Please enjoy Meg Wagner, the goal guru. Meg, thank you so much for joining me today. And what should I do with my life? Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's so funny how we were connected through a mutual friend, Alana. Shout out to yeah. Alana, who you had worked <laughs> with. And that's how you're here. And that's how we know each other. So I'm super pumped. Let's just dive in. I want everyone to get to know you. And I'm so excited to get to know you as well. So can you tell us in one sentence, Meg, what do you do? The million dollar question. And I feel like that sentence is changing all the time, but essentially I, um, I run a coaching practice where I help teams, individuals, and leaders break down really amorphous goals. Sometimes they're really big and sometimes they're just not really clear to actionable steps so they can make progress on things that are important to them. Taking a step back, now you're in the coaching world. What was your original dream job? When you were little, there was something you were thinking about that you wanted to be. So can you share a bit about that? Yeah. For my second grade career day, I actually went as a book editor. Um, I, my mom worked in an office and she had all of this, she was, she was like a paralegal and she had all of these like really nice clothes. And I was kind of a chubby little kid. So I fit into all her office clothes and I was like, I'm great in this pencil skirt. And I was very excited. And I carried my little typewriter in and I was like, I'm going to be an author. And everyone's like, if you're going to an office, you're not an author, you're a book editor. And I was like, that sounds good. And from that point, point on. That was kind of the thing. Kind of stuck. I wanted to work in books. I wanted to be a book editor. Books became kind of part of my identity. And then as I went through college and started started kind of that that process of what what do I do with my life kind of for the first time, I started, you know, reaching out for internships in in book publishers. And it kind of kind of all snowballed from there. So in my head, I was going to be the next I don't know. I can't even remember a famous book editor now, but I was going to be a very famous book editor. And that was, that was my brain, my brainchild. That is such a funny, great story. And <laughs> I wonder how many people out there have stories like that. And I'm also wondering editor versus writer, like literally mm-hmm. because of the outfit. And someone said, if you're working in an office, then you're the editor. editor. That yep. made you feel, I want to be the book editor. Did you ever think about yep 
writing or we're going to get into the work? Yeah. yeah, I do a lot of writing probably in my work every day. And, and I've always been, my writing is always kind of my voice transcribed in a lot of ways. So I like stories. I like telling stories. Um, I'm not a great fiction writer and never had a really good passion. Like I never really had a passion for fiction writing, but I love a good bit of nonfiction. I love to write a good explainer. In my career, I became actually pretty famous for my little like team explanations of like how we were going to do a really big coordinated thing. I, I enjoy writing and it's just, it's really funny to look back and think like, oh, I made an entire career decision at seven years old based on someone else's input and never that whole career track was all based on what other people were telling me, which is always kind of funny to, to look back on. I'm sure there are so many of us who the same thing happened to, oh, you're such a good I don't know. Oh, you're so good with the animals. You should be a vet. Okay. So now your lifelong dream is to be a vet. I mean, I'm sure it (laughs) happens with so many people and it's wild to me that it went as far as it did. So you ended up working as a book editor at Penguin Random House. This is a big job. This is a big deal. Can you tell us a bit about the work and what did it mean for you? Was that kind of like the pinnacle and I made it? I mean, first I should say, I am the kind of person almost to a fault, clearly to a fault, where when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And I I think that entire career path was just one big example of that. It was like, I said I was going to be an editor and I'm just going to finish doing it because I said I was going to do it. I did get up to the position of associate editor at Penguin Random House. Basically, that means I was running my own list and assisting other people. So I had anywhere from two to four executives that I was assisting. And those would be editors who I was helping, you know, like I would shadow read their books, but I would also make sure all of their contracts were done and all of their payments were done and everything was filed and answered all of their phones. I worked briefly for the publisher for a little bit while he was in between assistants and I coordinated all of his travel to and from Canada for probably about six months. There was a whole big thing with Penguin Canada at the time. I kind of forget, but he was there every week. So I was constantly booking flights to between New York and Canada. So I did a lot of liaising like internally within the company. I did a lot of working with all of the different departments, right? So it was making sure the marketing schedule was on time and the um, managing editorial schedule was on time and the book came in for different reviews, like when it needed to. So I did a lot of product management in that role because I was doing all of the project management for every book that I had acquired, as well as every book that all of my bosses had acquired. So there was just a lot of, a lot of keeping people on track. So that work was just a lot of, just a lot of that. Like it was just making sure everybody did their things on time and was happy. I love how you said, I said I would do it. So I would do it. I can really (laughs) relate to that. And like you said, for better, for worse, you said this, you were going to do it. You announced it to the world or your friend or whoever, you know, whatever that means. And Mm -hmm. and you went for it, whether or not you actually liked it or wanted Mm -hmm. to. When you got this job, and again, this was kind of a from second grade dream. Was it what Mm -hmm. you thought it would be? Was it different than what you expected? It definitely was. I think all of publishing is a little bit like that. I think all of us who've gotten into publishing, we think it's this great ivory tower of thought and literature and you get to sit and think and read and discuss. And, you know, you kind of all have the like Algonquin round table in your head. And it's really just a bunch of, you know, the pieces of it I was a part of were just a bunch of 20 somethings 
at a corporate job, getting their, you know, shuffling their work through day after day, hoping to still build themselves up to that ivory tower. They were like, oh, I'll get the office and it'll all be better. So it definitely was not what I had expected, but I don't think that ever registered with me as incorrect for any reason. It was like, oh, I'm paying my dues going through the like rigmarole part of it. And I will, I will work up to being able to have the, have the freedom to spend my day just talking to authors about what their creative vision is. Like that was the goal I was trying to get to. And I just needed to earn it, which is a very publishing, (laughs) very publishing Mm sentiment, I feel like. At a certain point, you said that this career and working at Penguin was Mm -hmm. your identity. You couldn't really separate yourself from your work. So Mm -hmm. How did that manifest itself for you in your day to day and how you thought about yourself and how you related to the world? So I was a book girl. I was a girl who read books. I I don't know if you remember the height of Tumblr was right around the time I was working at this uh, at this job. And there were probably four or five different publishing Tumblrs that were all really like everyone read them every day. But my whole my whole identity and my entertainment, everything that I was working on or around all had to do with book publishing. I met my fiance in book publishing. I <laughs> I worked with an ex in book publishing. Like my whole life was just publishing people. It just, everything was about it. The job of your 20s is starting to like realize all of the places your identity is invested without necessarily that you didn't intentionally invest it in. It's just kind of like, oh, I just like one day realized, hey, I am all about books for for no real reason other than I said I was going to be. It was really difficult to see how it manifested just because it was in every single element of my life. It just was like I woke up and my whole day was based around my work day and I left work on Friday and my whole weekend was based around what I needed to get done before Monday. It just, everything was about that job and about that space and about that culture for me. This happens a lot to a lot of us. And it's something Mm -hmm. I also deal with in terms of job and identity and your job is what you do, not who you are. And I don't know if it's our generation or the time, but I feel like right now, a lot of my peers, we really put them together. My job Mm -hmm. is my identity. That's who I am. That's what I can do. That's what I'm capable of. And I, I think it's a slippery slope for sure. I think some of it honestly comes from the fact that our jobs are not as stable as they were. I think like a previous generation, like your job was your job and you worked it until you were done. And I think for a lot of us, you have to be able to change employers, but you, what you do as your job becomes like your token of value from moving from employer to employer. And so it becomes really easy to conflate those two pieces of what you do with who you are. Absolutely. And especially just with now with a lot of digital roles, the fact that there's no separation between personal life and work life, and you're always expected to be on. Was there one moment, like an aha moment where you realized, oh, this isn't what I want to be doing right now. And I'm curious to hear about that and how you kind of grappled with it. Yeah, there was a particular moment where I realized more that my employer and my team valued my administrative ability. They valued my ability to project manage everything 
that they needed and had no real value for my, my creative growth. And that was really a big, a big moment for me is that they didn't really, they didn't need another editor bringing in books. They needed someone who could quickly and efficiently get all of the books from edit to published. Um, and I was very good at that. I, you know, they were like, maybe you can keep managing more people and you'll learn more. And I was like, I don't really want to assist five people. That's not, doesn't seem like it's going to give me any chance to any chance to grow. At the same time, there were several people in my same sphere who had less of that administrative product managerial role and were getting promoted more quickly and great for them. But it, I could see that the path could move quickly and that it wasn't for me. And I just got sick of fighting with them. <laughs> like I just, I truly was like, I'm done fighting with you that I deserve this. And I, and I just looked for other ways to kind of get to a space where I could, I could move forward because progress really has always been the thing that moves me forward. That invigorates me like sitting still. I don't think really is super, super invigorating for anybody. Absolutely. And so much of it is just taking that first step to get moving. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, if you don't move, nothing moves, you have to do yeah. something, even if it's a step in the wrong direction, at least it's getting mm -hmm. you moving and figuring out what you don't like. I mean, there's really no such thing as the wrong direction, I guess. You have to just trust your, you have to trust your future self to be able to handle wherever you, wherever you go. How long were you at Penguin Random House? I had interned for Penguin Random House for about six months. And then after that, I, I had two different roles. So including the internships, probably about five and a half years. I had been it's there. It's a long time. It was a long time. It was, it was a good chunk us. of time. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good chunk of time. When was it time to move on and how did you get to HBO? The path of moving on was not linear at all. I reached a certain point where I was like, well, they're not going to promote me. Maybe I can find something still within Penguin Random House. A big, weird cultural thing in publishing is that there's this concept that your skills are not transferable, that you, your skills only work in book publishing. And so it can make it really hard. I think for a lot of people to move on from the company at all, from any of the publishers at all. So my first move was to just make kind of a sideways step. I found a position in our marketing department for an online editor. I was not very good at that job, but I got it anyways. And I did it very poorly for about a year, but it was in our, our marketing department. I was working on our book blogs. Penguin Random House actually was really famous at the time for having started blogs where they covered and reviewed other publishers' books, which no one else really was doing at that at that point. They would only review their own books. So I was working on some of those and um, turns out they needed more copy editing skills than I possessed. And then it turned out that they required more copy editing skills than I could build because I was just not a very good copy editor. But all the while I was learning about SEO and marketing and building blogs and building digital spaces and curating digital communities. I had never been that reader facing in my entire career. I'd never been that community facing in my entire career. And I was, I learned all of the stuff about, about those digital communities. And around the time I was realizing I was definitely going to get fired. One of my friends had moved on to HBO herself. They had a bunch of freelance roles in their digital marketing department. And she was like, she'd sent me like a job description and was like, Hey, I think you'd be really good at this. It was very different than my, like, I'm going to do this career where I, I like, you know, scraped and pulled job descriptions and, and worked really long hours on all of my cover letters and, and pitching myself. This was one of those jobs that I 
had previously been completely mystified by that I just fell into. I was like, oh, a job is just here and it suits all of my, all of my strengths. I even went on the interview and I remember one of the interviewers who's a, a very good friend now. <laughs> I remember very distinctly, she was reading my resume and she was asking me all of the professional questions. And at one point she just stops and laughs and she goes, you're so qualified for this job. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess this interview is going well. I knew I needed to be leaving. I was keeping my eyes open and something just kind of came up, which is the hardest kind of goal, I think, to pursue. And it's the hardest kind of outcome for people to really build up to is that like, you just kind of have to be putting in the hours and the time. And it just kind of happened. In terms of it not being linear, good, the people want to hear that, (laughs) you know, it's just often it's, it's not linear. And you said you took a more of a sidestep when you were talking about publishing and the skills Mm -hmm you acquire in the publishing world being less transferable. Anyone who's in an industry or at work where they're told, well, these skills aren't transferable, that would make it super intimidating to even try to leave. So how do you suggest, what do you think for people, whether they're in publishing or different industries where they're being told these skills are not transferable elsewhere, Mm. how can they actually, yes, use those skills that they acquired elsewhere or when they're interviewing for another job. Yeah. I mean, I think the key is that there's no such thing as a non-transferable skill. I think that's one of the biggest things I learned from maybe just a liberal arts degree. Everyone's like, what is that skill? What are you preparing for? And like, really what you're preparing for is critical thinking. You're preparing soft skills and you're learning how to interact with people and like those interpersonal skills and the, the project management skills or the tracking skills or what have you, like no skills you have are not transferable. If somebody is telling you it's not transferable skill, they're just not creative enough. It's not going to be a perfect cookie cutter fit, but you have to look at what you can do and, Mm -hmm. oh, I can apply this in this context. It Mm -hmm. looks a little different, but you can do it. What did the day-to-day look like at HBO? Was it super different than the publishing work you were doing before? And were you satisfied, challenged? Were you, did it kind of like reshift your goals? Did you have a new dream job or something like that? HBO was the first time I really let myself not have a dream at all for a bit. I was like, I'm going to just see where this goes. And that was also a very difficult space to come to because that is not how my brain operates. I was, it was a very difficult thing for me to be able to just accept that I didn't know where this path was going, but it made me more money and it gave me more options. And I was going to just kind of explore it. I came into HBO um, as a, as like a freelance consultant. I was working specifically on one website because of a very unique space that role came in. They invented this role to take care of this one website that they, that they had launched. It was kind of an Island unto itself. So I became this weird little entrepreneur, but like within a corporate space, like I had a bunch of corporate backing to run just my own little weird thing. So it was a strange, it was a very like strange opportunity and really what I was able to get out of HBO and and that space and that role, that was where I really started developing the collaborating on your job description kind of model. And I hadn't really thought of it like that. I just was thrown in the deep end of this job and no one really knew what it was supposed to be. And I knew I needed more structure than I had. So I just kind of started creating it. And I would, I would write out what my, stru- my, what my job was, what, I was, what my deliverables were. I really treated it as a very freelance job instead of a full-time job. And I was like, these are my deliverables. And I would review them with my boss. 
And she would be like, yes or no, or let's change this thing. And I would have kind of my blueprint to like work from. And it it became this like trial and error process of just really working with HBO every, every 90 days, really to to kind of define what my work was going to be. For me, I tied that all up with my identity again, but in a much more healthy way than I had previously. You sure? Yeah. It's hard. Well, so one of the things I actually do with that, how I kind of account for the identity piece of it, because there is a piece of my identity in all of my work. I, I don't necessarily think those two can ever be completely separated. However, what I, I do for those is that at work, I create two, one to two roles based on what my projects are. And I give them a title. I give them a name. So for a while at HBO, it was like general problem solver was actually one of the roles I named for myself. And like, that was the identity I had. That was one of the hats I was putting on, mm-hmm. but I also create those same roles at home. So I have like, you know, like <laughs> I don't really go with dog mom, but for effect, basically dog mom is like one of the roles I have at home. And like, I name that role so that I can kind of always see what they all are. And I can see how the ones at work are shifting and changing, how I update them. Like every, every 90 days is pretty much my, my go-to. So instead of one dated identity of book editor or digital marketer, I have these roles that are very specific to what I'm trying to accomplish in that moment and what I want in that like short-term space that I'm in. It also helps you kind of keep track of where you are, which role is getting more attention right now. Mm -hmm. Does dog mom role need some love and, (laughs) you know, HBO role or problem solver needs to tone it down a notch to keep the dog. So do you think anyone can be a collaborator in their job description or do you think it's only those lucky people who can kind of build it themselves. Some jobs seem so structured. So there are jobs that are, that are structured, but I'm finding increasingly they're fewer and further between. There are less of them. People hire for positions, not really necessarily knowing what they want out of that position. They just know they want an assistant or an associate or a manager, and they don't really ever think through all the things they want for that role. So I would say there are definitely roles that inhibit that, but there are actually many more roles than I think people give credit to that have a space for collaboration with their, with your manager. I also feel like it's how you see your job. And I don't want to botch this because I don't remember the source or the story, but I just remember some study where they were interviewing hospital cleaning workers on paper. What are you doing? It's not so glamorous. It's not such glamorous work, changing sheets, cleaning up mess and being with people who are ill. It's very hard. And the people were asked, what do you do? And those who said, you know, I help comfort those who are ill, or I help make a more pleasant space for them. The way they saw the job affected their mood as well as their satisfaction. So I think that's super interesting. Changing that mindset really could affect what you do and how much Mm -hmm. you're putting yourself into it. So when did coaching come into play? Tell us more. So I think I had been unofficially coaching most of my staff, most of my team, probably for about 
for probably about a year before it even occurred to me to start doing anything. Um, I've got some real big sister vibes, got a bunch of, got a whole bunch of little siblings. And I just, I'm a very big, like, here's my advice. Here's my take. Here's how you get around mom and dad. Or like, here's how you like make sure mom and dad aren't mad at you. And I, I take that very strongly into the corporate world. I just have a lot of advice all the time, but around I want to say like September, 2019, I also create a lot of tools for people. So I'll create a lot of things in Excel or exercises in word documents and stuff for people to help them through whatever it is they're, they're trying to like work through. And I just, I make a lot of these things. So I had made a time tracker, like a project tracker uh, for a coworker who's saying she had a really hard time not working too much. And I had trained her on the, on the time tracker, on the tool, how she could use it. And she looks up at me and she goes, you know, you could do this. And I was like, I just did. I like, I just trained you. You're fine. And she was like, no, you could do this as a job instead of the second thing you do on top of your regular job. Cause at this point I was doing, you know, I was helping run HBO campaigns. I was in the middle of working on Watchmen and I was running a bunch of stuff for HBO.com and our site improvements. And I was doing all of the marketing work and then also kind of doing all of this like coaching work on the side because it was what I enjoyed doing. And I think that was the first moment I was like, oh, this is a valuable service to people. This isn't just a thing I do in my day to day to make me happy. Like people value this. From there, I started a, a pilot program with a friend of mine that we, we launched at the beginning of the new year called 2020 Vision. And it was helping people tackle one goal, one new year's revol- resolution in the first 90 days of 2020, which, you know, ended up being hilarious, but that was our, that was kind of our starting point. And I came out of that with three full-time clients. Wow. Okay. Wait, so were you still employed with HBO when you ran the pilot program? Oh yeah. I launched the pilot program, the very last, I think I signed my first client the last week of December, 2019. And I left HBO January 15th, 2021. So all of my, like, like all of my test balloons, all of my pilot programs all ran for the the year of 2020 into, into when I left in 2021. Damn. Two questions. <laughs> One, what was it like for you to have a side hustle while working for a big corporate Uh, Because I started my podcast while working for SAP and I was just nervous about it. And I think some people get nervous about Mm -hmm. doing that. And how do you navigate that? I think part of my early days at HBO where I came on as a consultant, even though I had converted to full time at this point, I think I just took a lot of that mentality of like, you are a big client for me, but you are still a client. And really there's not a lot of grounds for your employer to have an objection to your side hustle, to making money on anything else. I didn't have a contract that said, I I don't even think I had a contract that was a non-compete clause. Really, I had no employment contract that objected to anything like that. So, you know, I kind of just jumped in. I also should mention that I had been I had always kind of had a side hustle. I I never stopped editing books when I left HBO. I actually still do freelance editing through a company called New York Book Editors. So I had always kind of had a side hustle. It was just like, this is just a slightly different one. I think it was always really healthy for me. I think we talk a lot about millennials have a lot of jobs. (laughs) It's always a really healthy balance for me to feel like I had and out if I wanted to leave. It meant that every day I was showing up at HBO, I really was choosing to be there and not like Mm. trapped there. Having the side hustle had always been kind of an important feature of my work at HBO. So many questions. (laughs) You just threw that one on me with the (laughs) side hustle of book editing. 
Why do you think you do the book editing still? Sure. Is it meaningful? Do you get satisfied from it? Is it keeping you in the loop of the publishing world? So a big part of it when I first started doing it was just, I had this skill I had built. I, I invested a lot of time and money in, and it was really good to for me to still be able to monetize the skill that I had dropped a whole um, graduate degree on that I had dropped the first five years of my career on. So for, for me, when I first started, that was a big part of it. It's actually grown to a point where for, again, it's evolved a little bit for me in that I feel like the authors I work with now, it's almost like, it's a lot like my coaching practice. So my editing is a little bit like a very specific creative coaching like interaction where I'm asking about what your vision is for the manuscript. Any of my, my clients who listen to this will, will recognize a lot of these questions, but I'm like, what are your strengths? And like, what do you see as your weaknesses? What am I looking for? What do you want to bring out? What's the message you want your readers to be kind of taking away from this? And then I read kind of that same way that I create plans for my, my coaching clients where I'm like, this is what you want. Here are the steps kind of to get there. And so it's kind of, it's kind of become almost like an arm of my coaching practice in, in that way. I love that. I love that you can kind of, you're weaving it in together. It's not two separate things. It's kind of, mm -hmm. it all blends together with what you're good at, what you like to do and your approach to mm -hmm. working with people and problem solving. When did you decide to go all out, quit the stable, steady job and really embark on your own in coaching? The mergers at HBO have been really rough on T-Morale, honestly. The AT&T merger went for a really long time and a lot of those culture shifts, a lot of those team shifts were just starting to heat up in 2020. And they had kind of played them back because I think there was obviously a lot of, of upheaval, but as 2020 was coming to an end, they were starting to, they were starting to kick up again. The team structures were getting reassigned. I think the team structures have changed probably two or three times, even since I left in mm. January. There was also a big round of layoffs in that November, um, but mostly that fall was me kind of seeing all of the changes happening and coming down. And being like, this feels like a really good moment just to kind of like step away. Like the, the role is going to be changing and shifting anyways. They had just laid me off and I could have had severance. That would have been better, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, it just kind of worked out that things were changing and the company needed to make their changes the way they, they needed to, but it kind of left my role at like a big question mark anyways. And I was like, if there is going to be a time it's, it's now another big part of it was that because of coronavirus because of quarantine, I wasn't spending any money on rent. We were, we had spent the first three months living with my fiance's parents. And then we were, you know, just kind of like make sure everything was okay with them. And then we were living in like family property out, like out in Montauk. And I, for the first time in my adult life, wasn't paying rent. So my overhead was very, very low. And I was like, this kind of feels like all of the needed, all of the things I need to make a run at this and kind of try it out the way that makes the most sense to me feel like they're, they're in place right now. So let's talk a bit more about your coaching. You are the goal guru. So how did you decide to call yourself that? And I want to hear a bit about some of the services you do, sure. private coaching, group mm -hmm. sessions, tell us. Mm -hmm. Credit where credit is due. The Google Guru was totally my fiance Nick's idea. I was really busy trying to make a pun on the word optimist work. I wanted something that like conveyed like the 
happiness and the silliness that I kind of naturally have um, with the ability to make things better. But shockingly, that pun doesn't work. And if you try to use it, it's lame. But I really wanted it and it was going nowhere. And I was really frustrated one day. And honestly, first words out of out of Nick's mouth were just like, I think you're the goal guru. And I was like, well, that's anticlimactic. And I'm mad at you. Mm-hmm. So I spent probably about three hours being really ticked off that he like came up with an answer to this puzzle <laughs> I'd been working on for weeks. And then I was like, yeah, the alliteration works. And it kind of conveys a lot of really important things to people pretty quickly. So my fiance, Nick came up with that. He was also a uh, publishing nerd. He was, we were one of, he, I met him when we were both assistants at Penguin Random House. So um, he's got the alliteration and the, and the writing chops for it so so that's that's kind this of where should the be a new business from. for the two of I know. you <laughs> just like naming stuff exactly <laughs> some of the services I offer um I have a couple of one-on-one services I offer something called clarity hour where I basically take people step by step through my 90-day planning process and I have a couple of different tools that are customized based on the type of problem you're trying to work out or the type of goal you're trying to tackle so I have slightly different tools for if you have a whole bunch of projects and you just can't decide which one to focus on versus you have kind of a big project, but you don't really know where to get started. That clarity hour is, is just kind of like a one hour. We do like a half hour, get to know you session and like kind of talk through what the issue is. I send you tools. And then we go through this like 60 minutes where we just kind of like work out a 90 day. Here's how you're going to work through this. And then I usually follow up kind of at the like, you know, 30 day and 60 day marks to just kind of check in on how you're doing and make sure everything's kind of going all right. Do you need any like pivots or or anything like that? And then I do one-on-one private coaching with folks and that's usually weekly or bi-weekly. And we have like a 45 minute or an hour sessions where I just kind of talk through what's happening for your week. And we just kind of anchor in like setting kind of an intention for the next week or two weeks. This is what you want to do. This is how you're going to do it. Where does it go on your calendar? I think one of the things that really differentiates me from other like life coaches is that I'm very practical. It's very much like, what do you want and how are we going to make time for it? How is the execution of this going to work? And so it becomes very tangible, like what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, which I find are the biggest obstacles to accomplishing any, any goal of any kind is just that you don't really know. Like, you're like, yeah, I want to do this. You know, you get to the end of every day you're like, oh, I don't have anything left for it. And so we find a place for it in your calendar. I also have team offerings. I'm just starting to kind of roll some of these out on like bigger scales, but I have a Monday's motivation series of weekly check-ins for your team to help plan their week so that everyone's goals are kind of aligned so that everyone kind of is checking in and making sure they're, they're aligning with the bigger team goals. And then I also have a team back boundaries workshop for, for groups to help people kind of set better. You know, you kind of had mentioned about people feeling like they always have to be online and that's actually counterproductive to getting stuff done in the Mm -hmm. office. It actually makes you terrible employees. Mm -hmm. And so I have a whole workshop around helping people set boundaries in a really healthy collaborative way that isn't just, no, I said, no, it's, it's much more like, here's how we set when you're offline and why, and how to get a hold of you if something truly is an emergency so that you can actually put your phone down and not have to worry about it. And then I have a couple of workshops coming up that I haven't really designed yet, but I'm working on them. Prioritization workshops where we take like all the things you have and we work through a better way of like prioritizing. Mm, Need that. Yeah. I mean, basically those are all just reconfigurations of the tools that I use for my planning, right? Like it's, it's one big kind of web of, of planning tools. And I just, am kind of like shifting them subject by subject so that people can kind of dip in and take the pieces that are the most important to them. Which component of your work do you like the most? 
It's always changing kind of a lot. I really enjoy, you know, there are some times where I really enjoy like creating the tool or creating the workshop and like the the actual building of it is really fun. But honestly, the biggest payoff for me is the the moment where someone takes a, a like the plan that we've come up with and I can see them start to run with it and customize it themselves. I can see them kind of start to take ownership of it. And it's not just a school assignment because I can kind of come off a little bit like your high school English teacher, but like it becomes, it becomes theirs. It's no longer a thing I like created for them. It's they're taking ownership of it. And that tool and that practice is really becoming ingrained in how they live their lives. I really work in my coaching practice for people to not need me anymore. (laughs) Like, like it's kind of a victory when people, when people are like, I'm good now I'll contact you if I need another package. I'm always happy to have people who, who who are still working with me, but it feels like a victory when people have internalized the tools that we've worked on and feel like they can take them out into the world kind of on their own without necessarily having to consult me. I love that. And it's so funny because it does remind me, I mean, there are a lot of different professions like that. If it's a personal trainer, if it's a therapist, if it's ultimately you want your client to be able to spread their wings and fly and you've done it right when they have the tools Mm -hmm. and can do it themselves. Looking at you, I'm like, this girl is living her best life. I want to do this. Seriously, from the outside, it's like, okay, you've been on this journey. You're figuring out what you like. You're figuring out what you're good at. And now you've built this business where you get to be you, do the things you're good at and like. Mm -hmm. You profit off of it. On the outside, it looks amazing. (laughs) We have to talk real talk. (laughs) What do people not know? What are some of the challenges of having your own business? You are doing this work that you love with a lot of different people. Tell us a bit about the tough shit, if you will. Sure. So I think one of the toughest things is that nothing is so acutely difficult. I can never pinpoint it, right? There's no like big hurdle of things that are like awful. You know, you're in an office and there's the person you can't stand or the the person up the ladder who's always in your way. Like there's always kind of a tangible obstacle. There's the project that's coming down or like company wants you to do this and it's stupid, but everyone has to do it. And there's just kind of a very tangible, like what is actually making things difficult right now. And I think for me, one of the hardest things is that when I'm not feeling my best, it feels like I, there's only me to blame. And <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's not really always, there's not really an enemy to fight. There's not really mm-hmm. a like, cause for it. So it can feel very floaty. It can feel very disconnected. A lot of people cite isolation in starting their own businesses. I don't feel that. I kind of like working off on my own. That's kind of fun. But it can leave me feeling a bit unmoored more than anything else. And then I think honestly, for where I'm at right now, you know, constantly worrying about money. I'm I'm constantly concerned if I'm pulling in enough or if my strategy is pulling in enough or if I'm putting in enough work to make that money. Like I, like it, the work life balance when you're running your own business can overtake you very quickly because it can be like, well, if I just worked harder, if I just did more, I would make more money. And it can be very, very difficult to like start drawing those lines. I am operating from a place from a certain amount of burnout. So I actually just can't do more than X amount of work every day. Like my brain just shuts off and it's epically frustrating because I used to be able to do everything forever. And I used to, I used to be able to work a 12 hour day and not blink. Mm -hmm. And that can be really frustrating when it feels like that's the tool I need to Mm -hmm. be successful. So a lot of my current path right now is just learning that that's not, not learning, but reiterating that that's not the path to success. And that's not why I'm in this or what I'm, I'm doing this for. Checking Mm -hmm. to see where you are right now. And like you said, it's going to be different. Like your work and your work day five years ago 
what you're capable of and where you're at and how you work best, the mm -hmm. smartest way you work is going to be different. You clearly had these big changes in your career for thinking about second grade Meg in the <laughs> office pencil skirt. First of all, would she be so shocked to find out that you have your own business and that you do coaching? And because you've seen the shifts in your own career journey, are you looking ahead? Are you thinking, oh, I have a goal in 10 years? I mean, you're the goal guru, so you probably <laughs> have your own goals, right? Like what's next for you? Or do you have a big vision what you want to do? Yes. Young, young Megan would probably be very surprised that I, that I have my own business. I, uh, was always pretty good second Lieutenant. So this is, a, you know, I was the oldest. And so I was, you know, always kind of was like second Lieutenant to my mom. And then like in the classroom, I was like the suck up who always was like the teacher said to do this. <laughs> um, and I was really good at that. I was really good at the leader says this, here's how we're going to make it happen. And now I'm kind of stepping into being the leader and taking ownership of that. And that's really the the identity shift I'm going through right now. That's kind of the piece of this journey and like what I'm getting out of this business. It's not about money, which is nice and I like, but it's about learning to step into that part of my identity and trust my own real leadership capabilities in a way that I don't have another person up the chain to fall back on. I love that. And I love what you said about you were a little girl and you were the teacher's pet and the teacher would say something and then you were on the ground executing it with your yeah. classmates. Oh and yeah. Now that's really what All you're doing now. I really believe that those traits that we have mm -hmm. when we we're little, it's real. That stuff is real. Mm -hmm. That behavior yeah. is real. And that's most definitely, those are strengths and weaknesses and those are things that are going to be so applicable today as adults. Mm -hmm in our work, yep. in our life. I'm an English major. So themes and threads are a really big thing for me. Oh, the themes you okay, carry good. through your whole life are really, they're, they're kind of in there and the, the seeds are all there. Um, when I was going back, you know, when I went through the HBO changes and when I left Penguin Random House, like all of that was accompanied by me doing a lot of internal work of what are the skills I used to like to do? And like, what are the skills I am really good at? Um, what are the things I want more of in my life? And what are the things I want less of in my life? And they all kind of came back to a lot of things like that. So like part of, it's not a, it's not a mistake that my work at HBO took me more in that executional direction because when I was leaving Penguin Random House, I was doing a lot of that internal work being like, I want more of this and taking that position at HBO, let me do more of it. And leaving is letting me do more, even more of it. Yeah. I think the biggest thing right now, I've kind of mastered setting a really big intention and manifesting it. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I got that one off the ground. <laughs> like that one's yeah. the checkbox. So for right now, my biggest thing is setting smaller goals and intentions and really kind of just getting through each 90 days and, and kind of leaving space for things to be flexible. So I actually set my 90 day goals this last quarter and I left whole pieces of it unfilled out and assuming that other stuff will crop up. I like left a lot of white space in my goals mm. this, this time around. Trying to learn and create like a tool out of is like how to start setting goals more intuitively and a little bit less just in the concrete. Like if I feel like I've mastered the really concrete pieces of it. And I'm personally, for me, like learning a little bit more of the like intuitive side of things, deciding to drop something just because I want to, instead of because it like fits the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. So I don't have big five-year plan, five-year goals just yet. And I'm trying really hard to be okay with, be okay with that. It's yeah. really hard to be like, you know, people are like, where do you want to take your business? And I'm like, right now, I actually really kind of just want my business to explore a lot of possibilities, you know, and I'm kind of straddling somewhere between like that CEO track and that uh, freelancer track. And it's, mm -hmm. I kind of want something in the middle, but I'm not super clear on what that is yet. I'm just kind of feeling it out.
Meg, what advice would you give to people who don't know what to do with their lives? I mean, first of all, you're never going to know what to do with your life because what you do with your life is every single day. It's never going to be like one big thing. Um, It's it's never going to just be one thing. But I think in in that same way, it's really made up of what you're doing in small ways all the time. And so one of my favorite um, activities for one of my favorite exercises for when you're kind of just at the like, well, I know I don't like this, but I don't know what else to do kind of space. My favorite exercise is to like, just spend like, it's a daily practice of writing down what were like three things you enjoyed during the day. And they don't have to be work. They don't have to be, it just has to be three things in the day that you enjoyed or were grateful for, or connected with, you know, you can kind of change the verbiage, but something that like lit something in you that day. I got this exercise actually from the aforementioned fiance when I was very, very miserable at Penguin. And I was like, how can I ever even leave or do anything? Mm -hmm. I don't think he was trying to help me with my career. I think he was just trying to help me focus on things that were good. But we used to do, he would take me out for a walk at lunch and I was allowed to frankly bitch and moan as much as I wanted. I was able to complain for as long as I wanted. But at the end of it, I had to name three positive things. Mm -hmm. And that practice really became the core of what I do when I'm the most lost is like, what are things things that are actually connecting with me. And those become kind of the grounding things that help pull you out of the fog, out of that like really dense, confusing kind of space. They become the keys to adding things that you want in your life and dropping things that you don't. Practical, as you said, where can people follow you? The goal guru, stay up to date, work with you. So my website, meganwagner.com is always the easiest place to just kind of reach out to me. Instagram is where I'm the most fun and you'll get a bunch of astrology memes as well as some practical setting and planning advice. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, but I'm definitely way more fun on on Instagram. <laughs> this was great. Thank you so much, Meg. I love It's just always fun to see where the conversation goes. And I think there are a lot of really, really good insights here. And you have an awesome story. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a great time. I love, I love sharing my story. Thank you. Hi everyone. So much stuck out to me in this episode with Meg. First of all, I love this origin story, how this career day from second grade literally helped Meg dictate her career goals and her journey. She was so honest when she was talking about how to a fault, she follows through on her word even if that means doing something she didn't even want to do anymore. I think a lot of us can relate to this, and it reminds us to ask ourselves the questions of, why am I here? Why am I still doing this? Is this still serving me? When it comes to being your own boss, Meg shares that one of the biggest challenges she faces of having her own business is that if things aren't going well, it feels like she only has herself to blame and no tangible enemy to fight. Clearly, Meg is super, super resilient and doesn't let the challenges stop her from moving forward and taking care of business. If you don't know what to do with your life, Meg suggests that at the end of the day, you think of three things you enjoyed or three things that were the highlights of your day. Use these as anchors and objects to ground you to help get you on track. You can keep in touch with Meg by signing up for her workshops and sessions at www.meganwagner.com. You can follow her on Instagram as the Goal Guru, and you can feel free to connect on LinkedIn. Links are in the show notes. That's it for now.